Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each podcast and broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore contemporary leadership issues and solutions in a variety of disciplines. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. Today is no exception. We, we have uh, someone with us today who's an expert in their area. Um, I'm pleased to introduce to you uh, someone who's an associate professor at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute of, at NYU. Um, she has a book. Um, entitled uh, Artificial Unintelligence, which I have right here on my desk, um, How Computers Misunderstand the World. Um, her research um, goes and talks about artificial intelligence and investigative reporting. And so without a whole lot more ado, I want to introduce you to Dr. Meredith Broussard. Meredith, welcome. It is so great to be here. Thank you so much. So glad to have you. And so for uh, our, our listeners who have joined us every week, you already know this um, podcast and radio show actually started back in 2012, um, and and we're celebrating our going into our 10th year. Uh, it's just been a blast to have so many um, experts and, and researchers, and today is no exception. Um, with Meredith, and and we've transitioned quite a bit in the in the show. Uh, we used to focus just on leadership, and then we expanded uh, from leadership to talk about organization issues. And now, just talking about uh, a variety of disciplines, and 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 particularly that people in leadership really need to know a little bit about everything. And so um, today we're going to talk a little bit about artificial intelligence. And I, as I was saying before we went live, it couldn't be more timely with, with uh, what's going on in the, in the news. Um, there, you know, one of the, the top searches right now is artificial intelligence and uh, others include things, terms like uh, algorithms and, and data. And so um, you have a lot of that in your, your book. Um, but I, I want to just jump in and just start by asking you, you know, what is artificial intelligence exactly? And, and I guess what, what makes up the universe of AI? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. Uh, and it is just, it is a delight to be here because uh, when I write about AI, I'm also writing about organizations, right? So AI mm-hmm. is uh, at its core, it's just math. Uh, people tend to imagine a lot about AI. They tend to project around AI. Uh, and people tend to kind of go to Hollywood images of AI first. Yes. <laughs> so you might think <laughs> right. about the Terminator, right? Oh, my God, or that is exactly what I was thinking. Star Trek and, you know, all those cool robots. And, you know, we like to talk about, about robot apocalypses and, you know, yes. what happens if robots take over the world. So fun to talk about, right? But right. it's all imaginary. Uh, what's real about artificial intelligence is – 
what we call narrow AI. So general AI is the imaginary Hollywood stuff. Narrow AI is what's real. And narrow AI is just math. Even though it has this, uh, this name, machine learning, which is a kind of artificial intelligence. It's a subfield of AI, the same way that algebra is a subfield of mathematics. And machine learning makes it sound like there's a little brain inside the computer, and there is not. It's just, it's an aspirational name. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not accurate. Mm-hmm. So I think this distinction is really important to keep in mind of what's real and what's imaginary about AI. Because when we uh, are very specific about what's real about AI, it becomes more manageable. And we don't really think that math is going to take over the world. Uh, I mean, math is, <laughs> is complicated and beautiful, but it's not really threatening. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you, you mentioned um, the, the Hollywood version and that I, I laugh because that's exactly what, when I, when I heard people uh, talking about AI, that was the first thing that came to mind. So uh, we, mm-hmm. we, you, you mentioned the Terminator. And so I would, I would bet you that, 90% of the audience has seen the movie Terminator, but for the, you know, kind of the 10% that may not have seen Terminator. Um, so, you know, here we have this, this movie with an overarching theme of how machines learned, because you said it, it is about machine learning, um, but that uh, the, the machines, i.e. AI saw humans as a threat, right? So, then they said it's best to eliminate the humans. So you, you've kind of answered this, but I'm, I'm wondering, um, just, just to clear it up, to make sure I understand. So we're, we're actually not on a trajectory that would put us anywhere close to what we saw in Terminator, right? That's what you're saying? <laughs> we are absolutely not on that trajectory. Okay, okay. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, so that's good, that's good it, to know. It's really, yeah, it's really vivid. The uh, the dystopian future that uh, that fiction writers can draw for us, and mm-hmm. so the way that that story gets lodged in our brains is mm-hmm. kind of is is more sticky than yeah. a story about oh well AI is just computational statistics. Yes. Like people don't remember statistics the way that they remember stories. Right. And so we have to think about what's sticky in our heads and what are our brains going to go to first. Our brains are going to mm-hmm. go to these really well-told Hollywood stories. Mm-hmm. But we have to fight that. Right, right. Excellent. So um, then tell us a little bit about your work then, because I know um, – you know, from your background, you have been at the um, AT&T Bell Labs. You've been at the MIT Media Lab. I mean, you're a heavy hitter in, in computer science. I know you, you probably won't admit that, but, you, you know, you, you're, uh, <laughs> you, you're a heavy time. hitter with that kind of background. So, but, but you're at the Journalism uh, Institute. So tell us a little bit about your work. I actually started my career as a computer scientist, uh, and I quit to become a journalist. Uh, in part because uh, computer science uh, has a lot of problems with racism, with sexism, mm. 
Mm-hmm. And I didn't see anybody ahead of me who looked like me. Uh, I didn't see anybody who uh, I could model my career on. There just there weren't uh, there weren't black women ahead of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you're in that position, it becomes really really difficult to be to be a young woman in computer science. Uh, when I was an undergrad. I was one of six women who were computer science majors at a school of 20,000 kids. Uh, So it was just, it was really lonely. It was really alienating. uh, And, you know, like many, many other women who leave STEM careers for similar reasons, I just couldn't hack it. Uh, And so I was about to become a journalist, but fortunately uh, I came back to computer science as a data journalist. So data journalism mm. is a practice of finding stories and numbers and using numbers to tell stories. So what I do now is I write computer code in order to commit acts of investigative reporting. Gotcha. Wow, that's fascinating. And especially uh, where, you, where you started. I've had uh, a few friends that uh, have gone uh, in, into computer science and uh, and have actually worked also at Bell Labs, and um, and you know it, it's interesting how we find our ways uh, for different reasons in different areas, right? So um, mm-hmm. I mean, kudos to you for for going into this area. Uh, I know that you have been um, you've you've been uh, credited with coining the term techno chauvinism. Um, you want to say a little bit about that? Oh, thank you. So techno-chauvinism is the idea that computers are superior to mm-hmm. humans, that technological mm-hmm. solutions are superior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I would argue instead is that we should think about using the right tool for the task. So sometimes the right tool for the task is a computer. Absolutely no question. Uh, mm-hmm. And then other times the right tool for the task is something simple like a book in the hands of a child sitting on a parent's lap. One is not inherently better than the other. It's not a competition. You know, uh, it's about the right tool for the task. So I think if we, if we think about this uh, and we think about, all right, well, in terms of communicating with our friends, absolutely, mm-hmm. we want to call our friends on the phone. We want to text our friends. We want to see them on social media. But should we turn over everything to digital methods of communication? No. Mm -hmm. We still want to verbally communicate with our friends. We still want to see our friends in person. So Mm -hmm. it's it's about tools and the right tool for the task. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you you mentioned data um, and that part of what you're doing in um, in your, your journalism work is that you are are telling stories from data, and um, I'd love to hear some ways in which data um, uh, is actually used. And I know you talk a little bit about this in your book, but the data is used to create AI. But I, I think about when when I started reading your work, I thought about a book that I read probably twelve or or more years ago. Um, and, uh, it's a book by Stephen Baker. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it was called Numer- the Numerati and mm. he, he, and he talked about 
very early on, um, like I said, about 12 years ago, about um, how uh, data was being going to be used to um, to gear information to people based on previous choices that they've made. And it's kind of prophetic, mm-hmm. right? Because here we are in the middle of this debate and conversation, but how data gets used. And and so my my own experience with that, I never will forget, I used to, years ago, used to subscribe to a magazine, Inc. Magazine, and um, and I noticed this one particular day um, that there were a lot of African American models in the in the ads. You know, it was an ad mm-hmm. for a Chrysler car. It was an ad for a Cartier watch, and so on and so forth. And I just thought, oh wow, that's pretty good. You know, <laughs> I haven't seen that before. So mm-hmm. a few years passed, and I'm reading the Numerati, and he suggested that. Um, magazines and television companies and, and, and cable companies would all use information that they knew about you to gear that towards you. You know, so if they, if they thought you were a 20 something African-American male, you, if you had a subscription to a magazine, they were going to gear ads in that magazine. They could tailor the magazine ads for you. And mm-hmm. I, it, it just it made me think when I started reading, kind of like going back, that this hasn't ended and probably is just really starting to crank up about ways in which data, um, kind of those databases are filled that inform the AI. So I'd love to hear you say a little bit about that because I know um, that that you have also been featured in a um, uh, documentary about this, ways in which uh, data has is skewed in a lot of ways. But I, I, before mm-hmm. we get into that, I'd love to hear you say a little bit about ways in which data is used to create AI. So what do we mean by data and 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 it's being it's being fed into these these codes? That's a really good question. So data is what we use in order to create what we call AI models. And then the models are what we use to predict or to select ads to show somebody or to select uh, Facebook content to show them. Uh, And so one of the problems is that data reflects the world as it is. Mm -hmm. And the world is imperfect. I mean, we Mm -hmm. have racism, we have sexism, we have ableism, we have all kinds of structural inequality in the world. And so if we build models and say, here's the data, uh, I want you to replicate what you see in the data, we've found that computers see all kinds of things that uh, reveal really interesting things about people, but also reveal the worst about humanity. Mm-hmm. So computer models will just replicate inequality. And so that's, mm. the, uh, that's the core of the movie Coded Bias. So Coded Bias is about uh, the journey of Joy Bolawini, uh, who is absolutely amazing. Uh, she was absolutely. a student at the MIT Media Lab, uh, and she wrote a groundbreaking paper slash project called Gender Shades along with Samit Gebru 
and Deb Raji. And the finding in Gender Shades was that facial recognition systems, which again are based on models built from data, facial recognition systems are biased. They are better at recognizing light skin than dark skin. They're better at recognizing men than women. And when you do an intersectional analysis, uh, they are best of all at recognizing men with light skin. They are worst of all at recognizing women with dark skin. And so a lot of people would look at this and say, oh, well, you know, clearly the problem is, uh, as Gender Shades has shown, that uh, there aren't enough people with darker skin in the data set that was used to train the AI models inside mm-hmm. facial recognition systems. We'll just mm-hmm. fix it by putting more people of different skin tones in there. And Joy Polomini goes one step further and says, no, that is not the appropriate response because what we have to do is we have to look at how these systems are deployed. These facial recognition systems uh, and and similar systems are disproportionately weaponized against mm-hmm. communities of color, against poor communities. And so the correct solution, the abolitionist solution, is to not use these systems at all in policing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so the, the work that you've been doing about using data analysis for the social for social good how how are you suggesting that we we turn that around well i'm actually writing a book right now uh that's about the intersection of uh technology and race and gender and ability uh and so i i'm on book deadline and so i ought to have something more coherent to say about it in uh <laughs> in a couple of months good, good. <laughs> Uh, But I think it's really important that we start talking about data as a social justice issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for a very long time, there was this perception that algorithms and data, because they're just math, were neutral or were more objective or more unbiased Mm -hmm. than, you know, messy, opinionated humans deciding things. Uh, But Kathy O'Neill writes in her book, Weapons of Math Destruction, that algorithms are just opinions embedded in code. Mm -hmm. So we need to start understanding algorithms and AI systems as socio-technical systems. They're they're not just these magical AI systems that spring into existence or like are sent down from heaven or something. They're built by people. Mm-hmm. And they're built by people who are trained in an industry that is very pale and male and yale. Uh, they are trained in an industry that has a lot of structural problems, uh, a lot uh, caused a lot of economic inequality. Uh, and this, this kind of cavalier techno chauvinist attitude inside Silicon Valley is kind of where we got, you know, the current misinformation problem on mm-hmm. Facebook. It's mm-hmm. where we got facial recognition systems that are racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we just need to understand that this is not just a problem of technology. This is a problem of people as well. Right. And right. we need to, people need to understand the technology a little bit more 
just a little bit more, you know, if people are feeling intimidated by it, like it's just a little bit, but they yeah. need to feel empowered in order to push back against algorithms that are increasingly being used to make decisions on our behalf. Because right, these algorithmic right. decisions are rarely fair. Right. They are rarely right. just. Right. And, and just to make it very practical, um, I, you know, you, you, you talk a little bit about that in one of your chapters, uh, popular doesn't mean good. And so a lot of people, you know, that I've, you know, non-computer scientists, um, non, you know, kind of social science um, um, colleagues uh, have asked the question, so what's the big deal um, about this? What is this really about where people are upset about algorithms? I, you know, they, they <laughs> be the first to admit, I don't know about a, a, a algorithm and I try to explain what it is, but, but what I, I think at its core um, when I discuss it with colleagues, we come to understand that. So the data uh, is created by a group of people. And I think you just pointed out very well that there, there are disproportionate numbers of, of individuals in the field doing these codes and, and, and creating the data uh, sets that are white and male. And that's actually part of what, you know, Joy um, talked about in what she discovered in terms of the facial recognition was that the people mm-hmm. creating it, they use their own models and the models they right. had available were their friends, right? They're there. Yep. You know, they wrote code for looking in the mirror for themselves. So, um, you know, it's inherently biased because um, humans are the ones that created it. So it, there's going right, to be bias right. uh, built in, right? Yeah, and we all have unconscious bias. You know, it's not like the programmers are sitting down in the morning and saying, I'm going to oppress people today, right? Like, they're just, they're people going and doing their jobs and doing their best. And the thing is, we all have unconscious bias, and we're all mm-hmm. trying to become better people every day, but we are not yet perfect. We are not yet there. Like, we're yeah. all on a journey. But right. when you have a small and homogeneous group of people creating technology, the technology is going to have the blind spots of those people, uh, mm-hmm. the collective blind spots of the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, listeners, if you've seen the, uh, the video of the racist soap dispenser, this is a really good example of what you get when you just have uh, – say, people with light skin creating technology. So what happens mm-hmm. in the video uh, is a man with light skin passes his hand under a soap dispenser, and the soap comes out. It's one of these automatic soap dispensers, right? Mm-hmm. And a man mm-hmm. with dark skin comes and passes his hand under the soap dispenser, and it doesn't work. And you think, okay, well, maybe the soap dispenser ran out of soap. Maybe it just, you know, it just broke in the instant between these two men using it, and, you know, that could happen. But the the man with dark skin takes a white paper towel and passes it under the soap dispenser and the soap comes out. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very clear illustration of, you know, why the soap dispenser is racist. 
And what probably happened is that the engineers who made the soap dispenser were people with light skin, and they tested it on themselves, and they tested it on their friends and family and said, oh, right. well, it must work for everybody. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, and and as I was saying, you know, the one, I, th- I think a great expansion, I'd love to hear you uh, expand a little bit on that chapter you wrote about popular doesn't mean good. Um, about the conflation of popular and good in these in these data tables, if you will, you want to say just mm-hmm. a few words about that? Sure. Uh, this is uh, this is especially useful when you're trying to understand how social media works. So, what's happening inside the social media systems is the algorithms are trying to pick out what's popular uh, and serve that up. Uh, because the developers who made these systems, the engineers who made the systems, they can't uh, make systems that replicate human judgment. And actually, human judgment varies a lot about what is good, right? Uh, But instead of good, they used a proxy. And the proxy is popular. So the problem is, you know, this, this works fine when we're talking about cute animal pictures or, you know, around Halloween when everybody's putting up pictures of their kids in their cute Halloween costumes. Like, that's great. Yes, those are popular and they're good. But there are lots of things in the world that are popular but not good, like racism, okay, and so, or, mm-hmm. you know, various kinds of vaccine misinformation, uh, so the computer can't autonomously determine what is good. It can only determine what's popular. And this is, this is not a good system. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't make any sense to turn over our social decision-making to a system that has this major flaw in it. Right. You know, it's right. not a good place to have our public conversation happening mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which again is why we're in a misinformation crisis right now right right what do you just as we i know we don't have but a few minutes left where do you think this is going to go um this discourse about uh social media uh the role um of social media and these these flawed ways of using it um, in in our society, what do you, what do you where do you think this will end up? I'm pretty optimistic about the idea that we're going to have regulation of big tech uh, mm-hmm. in some manner sometime soon. So under the current administration, they have got some folks in the Office of Science and Technology Policy over at NIST, you know at uh, financial services, it's like they've got a really great roster of people who really understand technology and understand the social implications, but also understand policy. So I think we're going to have some really smart uh, technology regulation uh, coming out of Washington sometime soon. And I'm really optimistic that this is going to be a, uh, this is going to be just a watershed moment where mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the problems big tech get fixed. Yeah, yeah. And and the thing is, is that it's changing so fast. Um, you know, I've seen, I'm sure you've probably also seen the ads where um, 
uh, one of the companies uh, has has admitted that the um, you know the regulations haven't changed, even though mm-hmm. the the technology has grown in leaps and bounds, and we're still yeah. dealing well, what's with that. Thing they say that the uh, the law is always twenty years behind technology. Oh, wow! That's well. And I think that's exasperated now. I mean, when we were talking about the difference between, say, a telephone with buttons and a, a rotary dial telephone, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But but yeah. but the way things change in 20 years, uh, as regards some of the things that we've been talking about with um, what what computers can know and be able to do. Um, so I mean, it's just light years ahead. So. Um, I'm, I, I'm glad to hear you say that you're optimistic and, um, I'll, I'll try to share in some of that optimism with you, um, uh, that it will, um, that this will be corrected with some, some more regulation of big tech. And, um, and I just hope, you know, people don't buy their way out of it. You know, so many things get solved or, or worsened because people are, are uh, putting a lot of money towards their um, their interests. So I'm I'm mm-hmm. hopeful in that Fingers regard. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Meredith, thank you so much uh, for this conversation. I learned a lot, and I'm sure the listeners did too. Uh, uh, wishing you a lot of success uh, in the future on your not only your research but um, your book. Uh, those of you who haven't. Um, uh, seen um, Meredith's book, uh, Meredith Broussard. Um, it's uh, Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. And we'll also be on the lookout for your, your new one. Do you have a working title yet, or are you you're still working on that? Uh, I do not have a working title yet, but it's going to be out in uh, early 2023. Okay, okay. Well, that's all right. And if you also haven't seen uh, – uh, Meredith also appeared in the documentaries, a Netflix documentary. I wholeheartedly recommend it to you. Um, if you have not seen it, um, entitled uh, "Coded Bias," um, worth your worth your time in seeing it. And so, again, thank you so much, Meredith. We'll be listening and reading your work well into the future. Um, hope to hear from you again. But until then, go well, stay well. Thanks so much. It was such a great conversation.